Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. Series of uh, Doctrine and Dinner. And I work again, this time as I did last, under an impossible task of trying to talk to you about sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, in 30 or 35 minutes when we usually spend about, oh, three or four semesters in school and volume upon volume of writings, uh, hour upon hour of study, and then trying to condense all of that. So I, I know I'm laboring under that, and I, I can't really do it justice. So I'm going to suggest a book. Uh, this book is written by Noel Brooks, who is now deceased. He's an English theologian. It's a little small book of about 70 pages, but it is a classic. It's called Scriptural Holiness. It's available through Life Springs, our, our publishing house in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And you need that book for your library because it's one that you will read over and over again. So what I'm going to try to do today, laboring under those limitations, is one, my goal is one, not to bore you. Amen. The second goal is to realize that the thunder play at noon. <laughs> and the third goal is basically I'm trying to whet your appetite so that you will begin to understand that God's desire for you is to experience and enjoy deeper experiences and relationships with Him. That's my goal. That's what I'm going to try to do in the next few minutes. So, the first thing I want to ask you is, who wants to be happy? Who wants to be holy? Well, not quite as many. Because, you see, that's the problem. Man wants to be happy, and God wants us to be holy. God says, be ye holy as I am holy. That we're to be a holy people. He said to be perfect, even as he is perfect. And the word perfect there comes from a word that means altogether complete, finished, and mature. And you remember this from the way he dealt with his people, Israel, because he had chosen them. He had redeemed them. He had brought them out of Egyptian bondage through the Passover. You're well aware of that story. When I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over you. So through the shedding of the blood of that Passover sacrifice, they were redeemed. They were uh, uh, forgiven from the penalty of sin because the wage of sin is death. But when he saw the blood, he passed over them. So they were saved or redeemed from the penalty of sin, which was death. They were saved and redeemed from the power of sin, which was their servitude and their bondage to Egypt. But they were also saved from the presence of sin. Because he brings them out of their bondage and starts them on a journey to a land that he's promised to them. They were his redeemed people. And yet later he comes to them in the book of Exodus and he says, I've called you to be holy. You are to be not only a redeemed people, but a holy people. You are to be a special treasure to me. You're to be a kingdom, a priest, a holy nation. So sanctify yourselves that you might be my holy people. And so he gave to them ten commandments. 
And he said to them, if you do these things, you will live. You will be holy. You will be in right relationship with God, and you will have right relationship with man. And the result of living that way is that you will be happy. You will be prosperous. You will be blessed. The only problem was they discovered that even though they bound themselves to the law, that they couldn't do all of that. And they sinned, and they fell short, and they had willful transgressions. And so he gives them a sacrificial system so that through the offering of sacrifices, they are forgiven of their willful transgressions, and they are cleansed by a sacrifice that they could not do for themselves. Well, when they ultimately rejected Christ, then he brings us as Gentiles into the kingdom of God. We were that wild olive branch, and we've been grafted in, and we become his people. The church is what he wanted Israel to be. And Peter says this. He says, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a peculiar people. Not peculiar funny. Weird. But a special purchase possession unto God. And the purpose of you being a chosen generation and a holy nation and a special purchase possession unto God is that you would show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. So the scripture says he wants us to be his holy people. He wants us to be his holy church. And all of scripture says that. In the Old Testament, the, the, the psalmist said, who can ascend into the presence of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And when you get in the New Testament, John chapter 15, he said, every branch that's in me that bringeth forth fruit, I purge it. I cleanse it. I prune it. I lop it off. I cut it back so that you will bring forth more fruit. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed in that high priestly prayer. And he said, I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified. Sanctify them, Lord, through the truth. Thy word is truth. When you come to Acts chapter 15 and verse 9, he said, you purified their hearts. You sanctified their hearts by faith. Acts 26, we have an inheritance among those that are sanctified by faith in him. Romans chapter 6, we were buried with him in baptism, but we've been resurrected with him in the, new, the newness of life. Sin hath no more dominion over us. We know what he did for us. We reckon ourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto God. And we yield our members as members unto righteousness and unto holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we have cleansed ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Galatians 2 and 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it is not I, but Christ that lives within me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians, Jesus loved the church, gave himself for it that he might sanctify it through the washing of water by the word. Colossians, we are circumcised in our heart, not our natural heart, but our spiritual heart, and it is a circumcision not made by the hands of men. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and the God of peace sanctify you wholly, and your whole body, soul, and spirit be preserved blameless 
unto the coming of the Lord. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. Titus chapter 1, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, a special purchased possession, zealous of good works. And we could go on. Hebrews, our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Our bodies been washed with pure water. Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with those own blood, suffered without the gates. Well, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Over and over and over, he says he wants us to be holy. Well, the problem with that, is the moment we mention this word holy, it conjures up all these mental images. And most of them are not good. For the first image that we conjure up when we think about holy are the Pharisees. You know the Pharisees. They were the ones who dedicated themselves to keeping the word of God pure. They believed all the right things. They believed in God. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. They believed in the errancy of God's word. And they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They had a perfect creed. And they bound themselves to keep the code, the law of Moses pure. Not only the Ten Commandments, but all 613 ordinances as well. And they dedicated themselves to that. And so they were considered holy. And yet, when we think about the Pharisees, we think about long robes, long prayers, rituals instead of reality, realizing that Jesus condemned them because they forgot the weightier matters of the law, love and justice and truth. And though they had bound themselves to the law, they became more in love with their creed and their code than they did their Christ. And they became judgmental and legalist. And Jesus said it like this. He said they were white-walled sepulchers. They looked holy, but on the inside they were filled with dead men's bones. And that they would traverse heaven and hell to make one convert. And when they made that convert, he was twice more the child of hell than he was before they converted. That they had the key, but they wouldn't go in and they wouldn't let anybody else in. So then instead of becoming bridges into the kingdom of God, barriers because they were all wrapped up in their code and when we think of the Pharisees we understand that because there were seven different types of Pharisees there were the group called the shoulder Pharisees they were called that because they wore their good deeds on their shoulder so that men would see them and then there was a group called wait a little while Pharisees and he would talk and speak and give lip service to the truth but he never did what he talked about in other words, with their lips they drew near, but their heart was far away from God. And then there was a group called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And they had covenanted with God that they would not look upon a woman in lust. So when they went out in public, they walked everywhere with their eyes closed. And they were caused bruised and bleeding because they were constantly bumping into things, tripping over things, and falling and skinning themselves. And then there was a group called the humpback Pharisees. And that was because when they went out in public, they would hump their back and they would not lift their feet off the ground and shuffle in order to appear righteous and holy. And then there was a 
ever-reckoning Pharisee. He was constantly adding up all his good deeds so that God would be in his debt. And then there was a timid and a fearful Pharisee. He lived in dread of divine judgment and punishment. He lived his life in the terms of a terror-stricken evasion of judgment. So he tried to do everything in his power to avoid that judgment. And they kept the law. Oh, but you had to define the law. And so the law said, keep the Sabbath, don't do any work, and you'll be holy. But somebody's got to define work. So they define work as this. Work is to carry a burden. Well, what's a burden? So they defined a burden. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, enough milk for one swallow, enough honey to put upon a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member, water enough to moisten an eye salve, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, and read enough to make a pen. You had to live by all that. And so, you can't carry a burden. Well, what's a burden? He who carries anything, whether it be in his right hand or left hand, or in his bosom or on his shoulder, is guilty. But he carries anything on the back of his hand, with his foot, or with his mouth, or with his elbow, or with his ear, or with his hair, or with his money bag turned upside down, or between his money bag and his shirt, or in the fold of his shirt, or in his shoes, or in his sandals, is guiltless because he does not carry it in the usual way. This is what they live by. They couldn't tie a knot. That would be a work. So, but a woman could tie a knot in her girdle or her sash. Therefore, if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well, you couldn't tie a knot in the rope, but a woman could take her sash or her girdle and tie a knot and raise the bucket of water. And they lived by that. They argued whether a man could lift a lamp from one place to another. Could he lift his, his child? Could he write on the Sabbath without doing work? And so they put it like this. He who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or left hand, whether of one kind or two kinds, if they are written with different inks or in different language, is guilty of work. But if anyone writes with dark fluid, with fruit ju juice, or in the dust of the road, or in the sand, or on anything which does not make a permanent mark, he's not guilty. No wonder nobody wanted to be holy. And they had to wash their hands before they ate. And so they used a log of water to wash their hands. You know what a log is? It's an eggshell and a half. And it had to be measured for sizing. And you washed your hands from your wrist to your fingertips and from your fingertips to your wrist. And if you didn't do it that way, you had sinned. So men don't want to be holy because immediately you have this picture. Well, if it's not the Pharisees at the monastery, when we say holy, we see all these guys in long robes who have disassociated themselves from reality. And they live in this monastery and, and they make Gregorian chants and they walk around in silence and they tend flowers and pray all day long. And they live a life of poverty, an austere life, and they're celibate. Who wants to be holy? In fact, the best story I heard about a monastery was a young guy had just come in and, and for the first three years, that new guy in the monastery could only speak two words one time a year. So after his first year, he comes to the older leader of the monastery and he says, food bad. And then he spends the next year and he comes back and he says, bed hard. And he comes back the third year and he says, room cold. And then he decides to leave and the old man says, I don't, I don't, 
I can understand why you're leaving. All you ever did was complain. So when we think about a monastery, we think about holiness and who wants to be holy. Or we think about our early holiness movement, which was basically a religions of don'ts and dress. You don't do this. You don't go there. No fun, dour and sour, and no joy. We say it like this. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. I don't do those things. Or we used to sing, lips that have touched wine will never touch mine. And that was the concept of holiness. And if it wasn't what we didn't do, it was the way we dressed. Long hair, now it was always women. Men could wear great ties and really be spiffy. But women had to have long hair, which they usually rolled up and put on a little bun on the top of their head. Long dresses, no jewelry, no makeup. In fact, they asked Oral Roberts why his wife wore makeup. And he said, any old barn looks better with a coat of paint. And so ultimately, so ultimately, we defined holiness with a stereotype. We defined holiness before God based on what we did not do. Long clothes, long dresses, and usually long tongues, judgmental, and a critical spirit. And the answer was, who wants to be holy? Well, the fact is, God does. Because you see, God is. God's very nature, intrinsic to him, is he is a holy God. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Be ye holy as I am holy. He reveals himself in Exodus and Leviticus as Jehovah Makadesh, which means I am the Lord who is hallowed. I am the Lord who is holy. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who hallows you, and makes you holy. And everything associated with God is holy. He has a holy heaven, holy angels, a holy tabernacle, a holy place, a holy of holies, holy scriptures, holy son, holy spirit, holy church without spot or blemish, holy salvation, a holy people. Everything about God is holy. And who wants to be holy? Those who love him. Those who serve him. Those who live for him. And those who wait for his return. For he said, be holy as I am holy. Every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Seeing that we are dead to sin, how can we live any longer therein? The bride of Christ has washed her robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see God. They that be Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts thereof. We're buried with him in baptism. We're resurrected in the newness of life. Sin hath no more dominion over us. We're circumcised. We're a holy nation. Jesus sanctified himself that we might be sanctified. I have been crucified with Christ, yet not I live, but Christ that lives within me. So even in us, there's this inner yearning and longing to be holy. We used to express it in our songs. And the one I remember of a boy was called, it's an old Nazarene song. That's where I grew up in the Nazarene church. And it was called, Holiness Unto the Lord. We don't sing that one anymore. But it goes like this. Called unto holiness, church of our God. Purchase of Jesus, redeemed by his blood. Called from the world and its idols to flee. 
called from the bondage of sin to be free. Holiness under the Lord is our watchword in song. Holiness under the Lord is we're marching along. Sing it, shout it loud and long. Holiness under the Lord now and forever. And as good Nazarenes, we added a word to the chorus. We would sing, sing it, shout it, live it loud and long. Called unto holiness, children of light, walking with Jesus in garments of white, raiment unsullied nor tarnished with sin, God's Holy Spirit abiding within. Called unto holiness, bride of the Lamb, waiting the bridegroom's returning again. Lift up your heads, for the day draweth near, when in his beauty the King shall appear. Listen to what it said. Called unto holiness, praise his dear name. This blessed secret to faith now made plain. Not our own righteousness, but Christ within, living and reigning and saving from sin. Well, that's 1900s. But there's even a course today we used to sing. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want for me. So take my heart and mold it. My mind transform it. My will confirm it, conform it to yours, O oh Lord, to yours. So deep in our heart we want to be holy. But there's a problem. And the problem is called the sin principle. We're saved, we're redeemed, we're justified, we're adopted, we're born again, we're baptized into the body. His spirit bears witness with our spirit. Our willful transgressions are forgiven. We have clean hands because he's forgiven our deeds and our disobediences. We're saved. But after that, we discover something. Something's wrong within. We're saved. We're redeemed. We have this new nature of Jesus Christ, and yet we find this constant war going on in our soul, that the new nature of Jesus that is prompting us to holiness, which leads to happiness, is fighting against an old nature, an old man, that we received from birth because we're Adam's sin. And the Bible calls that old nature or that sin principle by many names, the, the, by many names, the Adamic nature, the propensity to sin, an evil conscience, the body of sin, the old man, the carnal mind, another law that is warring against the law of Christ. David said, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. By nature were the children of wrath and disobedience. Ezekiel calls it a heart of stone. Paul says in Corinthians, it's I. He says, I have been crucified. That old nature, that old man, what I got by birth from Adam is in every one of us. And even though we're saved, even though we're regenerated, even though we're forgiven, there is this constant battle between that newness of Christ and that old nature, the I. And that sin principle produces things, envy, strife, Fornication, anger, pride, bitterness, evil speaking, wrath, malice, divers lust. Jesus said out of your heart flows murders and adulteries and fornications and blasphemies and evil speaking. In fact, Brooks in this book puts it uh, like this. All the sins of fallen angels and men have their birth and power in the pride of self. 
Now, of course, this sinful self is not the self itself, not the normal self as created by God. It is rather a perversion within the self, a depravity of disease that affected the self through Adam's fall. The essential attitude of the sinful self is the love of self rather than the love of God. The sinful self is shot through with opposition to God. The carnal mind is enmity or warring against God. It is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Across the manifestations of this inward nature is the sins of egotism, exhibition, self-promotion, self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-love. It's self warring against this new nature of Jesus Christ. And David described it, or Paul described it like this in Romans 7. He said, I discovered after I loved the law of God in my inward heart, there was a war going on. I wanted to do what was right, but there was this opposition that caused me to do wrong. And when I would go out and do, try to do right, evil would come up, and I would back off and say, I'll do better next time. And I'd go out to follow the law of God, and again, there was this internal war, and he described it like this. He said, to will is to present with me, but how to perform it? And he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? And that is a graphic picture in the New Testament. You know what the body of death was? It's a picture about criminal punishment in Rome. When a man committed a murder in the days of Rome, they didn't have all these appellate situations. And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, if you kill somebody, the punishment was immediate. And many times the punishment was this. They would take your victim and they would tie that dead body to you. Face to face, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, foot to foot. And you would carry your victim until the corruption from the decay of the victim entered you and you died. And that's what Paul said. He said, I was a new man. I was saved. I loved the law of God. But I felt there was this old man that I was caring about, this old body of rebellion, the self, the sin principle. Who can deliver me? Who can cut the ropes and set me free? And he said, I thank my God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Now, don't misunderstand me, and I've got to hurry. I'm not talking about normal temptation. Every one of us face temptation. That's the work of the devil. You know, he, he, but temptation is from without. I'm talking about a war within. See, see, the devil comes from without, and he tempts us with our humanness. He takes the human natural elements God created us with and he tries to turn them into the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life because those are sins. Now what do you mean? Well, everybody has to eat. That's not a sin. But the devil comes along and tempts us to overeat. And the Bible calls that gluttony. And that is a sin. That's the lust of the flesh. Oh, now don't get mad at me. You're looking at me. I know we just ate. Everybody has to have rest. But the devil tempts us to become lazy and a sluggard, which is sin. See, that's the way he tempted Eve. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's the way he tempted Jesus. You see all these kingdoms? I'll give them to you. Amen. Cast yourself down from the temple. Show your pride. 
turn these stones into But Jesus didn't fall for it. And see, the enemy comes from without to tempt us. And he takes those natural desires we're created with for, for food and rest and, and, and fun, and we become lessers of, and, and sex. God created us that way. But the enemy comes from without, moves up on that sexual desire, and turns it to pornography, promiscuousness, homosexuality, which are sins. Man, I'm preaching better than you're shouting. And all of us will face that as long as we're in the flesh, as long as we live. Oh, kids, guess what? It doesn't end. Just because you get out of high school and college and you're not facing peer pressure, you're still going to face temptation. It's kind of like the young man who was a priest in a monastery and the old leader of the, the monastery was 85 years old. The young priest came in one day crying and said, Sir, I've, I've, I know you're, you've lived a long time. You've got all kinds of wisdom. And I've been fighting all these sexual impulses and urges and, and I've been struggling and, I, and, and I'm fighting with that. And, and I want you to tell me out of your age and your wisdom, when does that all stop? When can I be free? The old man looked up at him and said, When it happens, son, you'll be the first to know. get that later but so quickly that's why knowing we face these temptations that's why we need that sword that's why when we decide what we're going to do or we don't do the first thing we say is what is the specific word of God if there's a specific word of God and he says don't do it I don't have to pray about it then I say, what is the general word of God? Shun the appearance of evil. Skew evil. When evil comes in right, you go out left. Give no place to the devil. Those are scriptures, by the way. I just didn't make those up. Okay? So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is, if I do this, what will it do with my relationship with God? Because sin separates me from God. So I'm not going to put myself in a place where I'm going to be tempted I'm tempted already. So why would I go somewhere or do something knowing I'm going to be tempted? Dude, if I sat in an R-rated movie, you may be stronger than me, but I watch two people nude, I'm going to be tempted. Now don't look at me in your sanctimonious holiness. You are too. Because that's the way we're made. So why would I put myself there? Why would I put myself in a place where I know I'm going to be tempted of evil? Because I'm tempting God. I'm saying, I'm going to go there and I'm going to be tempted, but you've got to protect. You know what? He ain't going to show up. Amen. So, so how does it reflect, uh, affect my, how does it reflect my relationship, affect my relationship with weak brothers? Who are not as strong as me. How does it affect my relationship with those I'm trying to witness to because I'm supposed to let my light shine? So if I do something and it offends a weak brother and he stumbles and falls away from Christ, I've killed my brother. If it destroys my witness, that's my purpose for living. See, see that, that's why the Lord says, look, adultery is not just an act. It comes out of your heart. And if you look upon somebody to lust after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's why we believe in modesty. 
That's why we teach young girls, you don't wear anything just because it happens to be on the rack at the clothing store. Because if you dress in a provocative way, in a revealing way, and you cause others to look upon you in lust, you are as guilty as they are. You're leading others into sin. Man, you guys are quiet. Now, and I, and I said that because I thought it was necessary for you to understand. Those temptations from without. What I'm talking about is a war within. This old principle, this war of rebellion that's going on. And, and I want to read from you. Wait, my heart, I don't have time. But, but some people believe you have to fight that war all your life. Christianity is I'm forgiven, now I've got this war going on, and I, and I fail, and I'm forgiven, and I fail, and I'm forgiven, and I fail, and I'm forgiven, and I die and go to heaven, and I'm forgiven, and I take my place in the choir. That's salvation? No. God has a remedy for this war that's going on, and he calls that remedy sanctification. And there are, what we believe in is a second definite, instantaneous work of grace obtainable by faith on the part of a fully justified believer that we can be entirely sanctified, completely sound that our whole body, soul, and spirit can, can be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord Jesus said that he sanctified the people with his own blood so he suffered without the gate so that we could have this war over and the Bible uses words to describe that it's called a crisis experience. It means you weren't, now you are. Same way as salvation. I wasn't saved, but I repented and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saved. And this war was going on, but I came to Christ, and because he shed his blood on the cross, I'm sanctified, and the war's over. It happens in a moment of time. It is in the aorist tense in the Greek which means that it happened in the past at a crisis moment, in an instantaneous moment, and then it continues on from that point. And the Lord provided that we could be sanctified. And he uses these words. In the Old Testament was Kadesh or Kadesh, which means to be dedicated, to be made clean, to be sanctified, to be concentrated, to be set apart. Taman, which is the word that means to be perfected. Shalom, which means to be submitted to God. In the New Testament is hagiomos in the Greek, which means to be separated to God, which means we live a life that, that is befitting that separation. It means to separate us. But all those words are in the aorist tense, which means it happens in a moment. Cleanse yourself. Present yourself. Yield yourself. I have been crucified. My heart has been circumcised, cut off from that evil nature. In other words, sanctification is a two-fold work. There is this work of cleansing that happens in the moment of time, and then it is followed by a continuous life of maturity and growth in the things of God. We're cleansed, we're circumcised, we're crucified, we're cut off from the old man, and then we're consecrated. And we live like God wants us to live. Because the war is over. The old man, the old nature is crucified. In the, old, in, in the Old Testament, I could give you many examples. Abraham, he believed God. It was counted unto him to righteousness. But then he fell into sin. Oh, he was already righteous. He was the author of faith. 
But he fell in a sin with Ishmael and Hagar, remember? And for 13 years, God doesn't speak of it. Sin separates you from God. He was justified by God. He believed God. It was counted, but there was this war. But then God appears to him when he's 99 years old and reveals himself as God the sufficient one. And he cleanses Abraham's heart and he changes his name. You can see it in Jacob. He went to Bethel and he's supposed to have this relationship with God, but he was still a crook. He wasn't sanctified. But when he's going to meet his brother at Peniel, what happens? He wrestles with God on the creek bank. Peniel means face to face with God. And he said, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me until you heal and take this old man out of me. And the Bible said God blessed him there. You know how God blessed him? He cut the hollow of his thigh so that Jacob couldn't wrestle. All he could do was cling. And you understand you receive from God not in your struggle, but in your surrender. And he changes his name. And he's no longer Jacob. He is Israel. There's this whole cleansing element. And even though he limped from that struggle, he walks straight the rest of his life because that's what sanctification does. It cleanses you that leads to a life of consecration. I could go in to Joshua, Isaiah, he's a prophet, but he goes into the temple. When he does, he sees himself and he says, I am undone. I'm a man of leprous lips. And the Lord takes a coal from off the altar, touches his lips and says, your iniquity is forgiven and your, not your sins, but your sin is forgiven. And after that cleansing, what did I hear? I heard the Lord saying, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, here am I, Lord, send me. To go into David's life, we don't have time. The Old Testament sacrificial system, remember they'd bring the, the animal to the door of the tabernacle, shed the blood, that's a cleansing. Then they would skin the animal. They would separate the unholy parts from the holy parts. They would wash the holy parts and put them on the altar and take the unholy parts outside the camp and burn them. That's what sanctification is. It is a separation from the clean and the unclean so that you can be put on the altar of consecration. Now all that symbolism, but the reality is the New Testament. And the New Testament is that Jesus, in order to sanctify the people with his own blood so that we could be crucified. I have been crucified. The old man is dead, and I live, but it's not me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, there is this cleansing, this cutting away, this cutting off of the old man through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we see it best in his disciples. You remember after the resurrection, they're in the upper room. Jesus comes, shows him his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when he saw the Lord. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They're saved. But how did they come into that upper room? Self. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to have the right hand? Who's going to have the left? But what did Jesus do? He took them out as far as to Bethany. And he raised his hands and blessed them. You know what blessed means? Hold them, made them complete. It's in the aorist tense. He cleansed them. And the Bible said after he blessed them, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were constantly in the temple praising and blessing God. They had a business meeting. Nobody got mad. They, 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 they 
Nobody counted what they owned as their own. They gave it up for the good of the community. Why? Because they're sanctified. Their hearts have been cleansed as a definite experience of grace. And that old nature had been crucified so that now they had become God's people, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that they would show forth the praises of Him. And that is what sanctification is about. It is a cleansing, a circumcision, a crucifixion, a death to that old man. And once that old man is dead, then I become consecrated to live like He wants me to live. In other words, salvation forgives you of your willful transgressions. Sanctification makes your will one with His. Salvation is a choice between good and evil. Sanctification is a choice between good and best. You know what Jesus said of the Pharisees, and we're going to close. He said, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. And you know what their righteousness was based on? What duty required, not ours. Our righteousness is based upon what love inspires. Because he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, right quickly, when does this sanctification take place? Well, the Catholics say, when you die. You've got to have last rites. Don't have last rites, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. But what if they give you last rites and you live? One lady had last rites and she lived. She went to the priest and said, I've been sanctified according to your, your theology. You gave me last rites. The old man's dead and now I'm alive. What am I going to do? Live it. Well, you know what the Calvinists say? Oh, it's just grow. You, you, you just get a little bit at a time. It's kind of like the lady who had a dog that it's one of those show dogs and you have to bob its tail. You have to cut the tail off. And she didn't want to hurt the little puppy, so she just cut it off a little bit at a time. No, we don't believe that. We're Wesleyan holiness. We believe that it happens in a moment. That he cleanses our heart by faith. And that because of that, that old man is dead and we are consecrated to God. And how is this delivered? He died on the cross. That's the potential. But now because his blood is shed, we can search for it. We can seek for it. We can ask for it to be sanctified, and we seize it by faith. We have an inheritance among those that are sanctified by faith. They purified their heart by faith. And the result is we live saintly. We follow peace with all men and holiness. We live negatively and positively. You know what he said in Titus? He said, God's grace that brings salvation hath appeared. Teaching us negative to deny, to deny ungodliness, ungodlikeness. So negatively, we deny anything that is unlike God. We, we deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We're in it, but we don't live like the world. And we don't operate by its energies, its efforts, its priorities. We don't live up to its expectations. We're not conformed to it. We deny ungodliness and worldly lust. That's the negative. But then he said, live soberly. Sober is the opposite of drunk. So it means if you're living soberly, you're in self-control. You're not unrestrained. You live a sober life. And you live righteously. That means you're in right relationship with God. 
and you're in right relationship with man, and you live godly. You live like God. Be perfect like He's perfect. You respond and react like He. You love. Because you see, that's the result. This result of this sanctifying experience is that we have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. Wesley called it a baptism of burning love. We love God totally and completely, and we love one another with a pure heart fervently. The result of being sanctified is you're in love with God totally. There's no war. I can love Him with everything that's within me, body, soul, spirit, and I can love my neighbor like I love myself. I can love you with a pure heart fervently. I can love you like God loves you. And not only do I have love, I have peace. The war's over. I'm free. And I have joy that is unspeakable. Why? Because I'm not battling from within. Oh, I'm tempted from without. I make mistakes in judgment. I can fail in temptation like anybody else. But I know what to do. I confess my sins. I walk in the light as he's in the light. I live in love. I live in obedience. I live in truth. And because of, I'm free, I have joy. The war's over. All things are lawful to me. But all things are not expedient or necessary. All things are lawful, but I'm not going to be brought into the power of any of them. I'm going to live like I have been crucified, yet I live. But it's not I. My will is one with His. And you know what the cross is in your heart? After you're sanctified, you understand what His Word says. And when your will crosses with His Word, your will dies. And His will lives. That's what it is. And I live that daily. Uh, Am I sinless? Do I have sinless perfection? No. Do I have angelic perfection? No, I have Christian perfection. It doesn't mean I can't sin. It means I won't. I refuse. And you're looking at me. I refuse to sin. I flee ungodly living. I shun the appearance of evil. That's why I have convictions. That's why I have standards. I don't preach them because they're not for you. I I don't preach my own. I preach the the standards and the truth of God's word. If he says something is wrong, I'm going to tell you it's wrong. I'm not going to tell you out of tolerance and affirmation that homosexuality is right. It's a sin because the Bible says that. That's a standard. That doesn't change. No matter how much society wants it to change, God doesn't change. So I'm going to proclaim that, but I don't preach my convictions. Because you see, those are the ones that God and I have worked out. Because those are the ones that keep me close to Him, that doesn't do anything with my relationship, so that I don't do anything that I think would offend somebody else or or destroy my witness to other people. And so those are the ones that are sacred between me and God. I dug them out, and I live by them. Why? Because I love Him. He saved me, but He not only saved me, He freed me from that internal warfare, and I have love, and I have peace, and I have joy, and I'm to show forth the praises of Him who called me out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And I wanted to read from Brooks, but he simply likened sanctification to this. Copernicus, 
was the old man scientist from years gone by who discovered the sun doesn't revolve around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. He said, that's the way sanctification is. You discover that God doesn't revolve around you. But you have to commit yourself where you're in order around God, which means your heart's cleansed in a moment by an act of faith in the blood of Jesus, and then daily you're consecrated to God. Now, how do we receive? When, when do we receive this? Well, in the old days of our church, we had Sunday night service. Now, I know I'm not going to bring back Ozzie and Harriet and leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best to Mayberry RFD. I'm not going to make you come back to Sunday night service. But that's where we received. Because Sunday night service was different. We had altars. And it was in Sunday night service that we would come and not stand, but kneel. And bow our hearts. And bow our bodies. And weep and cry. And search and seek. And move into the deeper things of God. That's when I was sanctified. I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit on a Sunday night. Because that was the time in our church. I'm, I'm willing to bring that back. You can be sanctified right now by an act of faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But what pastor wants me to tell you, why did he schedule it deep? Because there comes a moment when you have to get out of dailies and obligations and pressures and get alone. Wesley did it on a ship from England to the United States the whole of that ship he sought God and God sanctified him and pastor is scheduled deep for a purpose so that you can withdraw from your dailiness and your obligations and you can come for a night and a morning and do nothing but be in the presence of God and hear from God and search and seize by faith all the things God wants you to have your spiritual life and health depends on that. And I urge you, come to deep. Believe God to cleanse you in a moment. Eradicate that old man. The war is over. Fill you with love, joy, and peace so that you'll live that retreat, leave that retreat living my will, one with his, totally consecrated to God. Who wants to be holy? I hope you will. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing right here. Thank you for your presence and your people. Speak what I can't speak. Say what I can't say. Holy Spirit, stir within us because we're sanctified by the Spirit. Set us apart by your Spirit and plant within us a desire to live soberly, righteously, godlike. For every man that hath this hope of your appearing purifies himself, cleanses us from all filthiness of the flesh and the Spirit, Help us to walk perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Bring us into the deep with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Passion. For more information about Passion, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress.